Immersion is a neurologic state that from all we can tell from this 20 years of research is the way the brain values experiences with social emotional content. So because the brain is very lazy, uh, we just want to cruise most of the time, save all that energy. When we see this immersive state, the brain's putting a lot of metabolic processing cost into this experience. It says, this is really important to me. And so I think this is where marketing, training, health all intersect, which is that when we build up, when we have these powerful emotional experiences, they help to rewire our brains to be more fully present, more emotionally open. And so I think if you're an advertiser, if you're a marketer, if you're a CX expert, if you're an EX expert, what you want to do is create an environment where these amazing things can happen and people have this chance to grow emotionally and build up their emotional fitness. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Do you struggle to immerse yourself in something, anything, without a buzz, a ding, or a vibration pulling you out of your train of thought? And if the answer to that question is yes, as I think it is for many of us, if not most of us, here's the next question. If we are struggling to pay attention to even the things that we care about, how as influencers, leaders, and communicators are we supposed to do the deep work needed to make a real and sustained impact on the world? My guest today on the podcast is Paul Zak, a neuroscientist, public speaker, and author who has spent the last two decades of his life looking into what our brains crave and how we can use those cravings to build experiences that actually change our minds. Paul is a professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. His TED Talk, please do check out his TED Talk, Trust, Morality, and Oxytocin, has had over 2 million views. And he has been invited to speak at such esteemed places as NATO Supreme Headquarters, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Harvard. I'm just, I'm naming just a few on the list. His most recent book, Immersion, The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness is based on 20 years of research into exactly why our brains hunt for the extraordinary and how we can use this knowledge to create amazing experiences for our customers, our employees, our audiences, and ultimately ourselves. On this episode, we talk about why understanding what actually makes an immersive experience holds the key to designing messages, movements, and marketing that has the potential to significantly change both other people's behavior and our own behavior. The five essential steps of persuasion, including how to open hot, 
by starting any piece of persuasive communication with a story designed, and there's a very specific design mechanism here, to literally change the blood chemistry of your audience. Why fun is always a better motivator than fear. Because although fear may motivate us in the short term, it is fun or positive emotion that continues to motivate us long after we have stopped feeling afraid. And how do we bring the fun? How do we bring the positive emotion into our communication? Finally, how to use the concept of immersion to lead a better, deeper, more enriching life and why this pursuit has become Paul's dedicated focus for the next 10 years. You know, this is actually Paul's second time on the podcast. And since the first time, I've enjoyed many email conversations with him on how the science he pioneered has changed the lives and business outcomes of tens of thousands of people across the world. However, where our connection became deeper and where our emails became a source of interest and strength and insight to me is our shared passion for what science and technology can do to help us pause which I know is kind of counterintuitive, right? When you think about it, that technology that is literally engineered to keep us in a constant state of mental motion, a constant state of adrenaline can also hold the key to helping us slow down, breathe in and become more intentional with how we spend our lives. You know, I've, I've said it before and I will say it again. To me, that is influence. The ability to intentionally choose how we show up in our lives, our communities, our businesses, our conversations, our team, our families, and ultimately for ourselves. Paul's work, his research is a powerful beacon in the light of that direction. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, don't forget. Hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, stride out, vision on, breath in and enjoy the incredible wisdom of Paul Zak. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Zak. Good to have you back. Really, Masters, you're the best. <laughs> I've been so looking forward to having you back, just not only to see your face and to get a chance to dive into this topic, which is massively close to my heart, um, again, but also to hear everything that you've been learning because you have access to such cutting edge data on where storytelling is going, where immersion is going, engagement, conversion of attention into action, all of these things. So before we like crack open any more cans of worms, I'm going to ask you the first question that I usually ask, which is, is there one thing, and it can be since the last time we spoke, is there one thing that's caught your attention recently, an idea that's really influencing your thinking, the way you view the world, how you approach things, or you just can't get it out of your head? And if so, what is that one idea? The idea for me is emotional fitness. 
What does that mean? So I don't like the word emotional wellness because it sounds like a zero one variable. You're unwell or well, but fitness is something that we can develop. And increasingly from my lab and company, we are identifying ways to build up that emotional fitness so that you can weather the buffers that we all face in life and, uh, you know, stay strong in front of those headwinds. And much of this has to do with the quality of our social relationships, having those people around you that care about you, that support you, and being able to quantify that and give people goals so that they can be more effective, happier, longer-lived human beings. And it all kind of circles around this idea of immersion, right? And we mm -hmm. touched on that in our first conversation, and I want to go further into that now. So this idea that immersion is the key to um, our sense of engagement, immersion is the key to things that we do take action on, the things that we don't take action on. It's the key to our emotional and mental wellness, fitness, to use the language you just used. So let's just start brass tacks. What, what is immersion? How do we measure it? Why is it important? Right. So immersion is a neurologic state that from all we can tell from this 20 years of research is the way the brain values experiences with social emotional content. So because the brain is very lazy, as you know, uh, we just want to cruise most of the time, save all that energy. When we see this immersive state, the brain's putting a lot of metabolic processing cost into this experience. It says, this is really important to me. And so I think this is where marketing, training, health all intersect, which is really a nice emerging research in the last decade or so from lots of labs that when we build up, when we have these powerful emotional experiences, they help to rewire our brains to be more fully present, more emotionally open. And so I think from, if you're an advertiser, if you're a marketer, if you're a, a CX expert, if you're a EX expert, what you want to do is create an environment where these amazing things can happen and people have this chance to grow emotionally and build up their emotional fitness. So give me an example of an, of an immersive experience so that we can just put it into context. How would I know that I am either having one or have had one or have had one in the past? Yeah. So sometimes we really know, right? Sometimes it's, it's so out there. We know, but these signals are deep in the brainstem outside of our conscious awareness. So I'll give you one from uh, your uh, adopted country. So uh, 15 years ago, I went to Sydney for the first time and checked into the Four Seasons. Someone was paying for it, which is so nice. Uh, stayed a couple of days, went to Canberra, the world's most boring city. You're aware of that. And then drove back. And then nothing, Canberra. I'm not judging. <laughs> I drove, you know, it's a long drive, right? All the kangaroos. And, and so I get there, you're just tired and you just want to, I'm staying for another couple of days in Sydney. And the bellman opens the taxi door and he said, welcome back, Dr. Zach. Your room is ready for you. Here's the key. Oh, oh, do I love the Four Seasons? Am I the happiest guy in the world? Do I have I remembered that for 15 years? And now if you give me an option of where to stay, the Four Seasons, the W, I'll stay at the Four Seasons because I know it's going to be amazing. So that's an experience I really know about, my live experience, but it can happen in movies. It can happen in advertisements where your brain is just captured emotionally, but we don't really know that. So as you know, we've developed technologies so that anybody can measure what the brain loves in real time by applying algorithms in the cloud to data we pull from smartwatches. So that's the key is that now there's a tool, both for individuals to measure 
hey, do I love what, what, what are the favorite experiences I've had emotionally during the course of the day or the week? That's a kind of a cool question. And then businesses can create more of those experiences or at least can create the environments for those experiences to happen at a higher rate. And so if we pull that into content, for example, you know, I know that you have spent, you know, started out in science and have spent a lot of time building tools now that means that companies can take a video, so an advert, a movie trailer, a song, and you can measure via people's smartwatches, measure the immersion value of that experience. So at what point during that experience were they fully immersed? And the higher the immersion, then the more likely we are to take action on what we've just seen. So here's a concrete example. Um, a number of the major movie studios use our technology to measure and improve movie uh, trailers. So those are three minute theatrical trailers. So as you may know, um, movie distributors make most of their money from movie releases in the first two weeks. There's a sort of a sliding scale. So they need to get butts and chairs. And so they will, they have companies that just create a bunch of trailers. They have roughs of those. They show them to a bunch of people, measure immersion, pick the top two, begin to edit those, test them again, tweak them, blah, blah, blah. And they end up with a high immersion trailer that um, creates anticipation to find out how the story ends. And so we sort of know this from a storytelling perspective. I want to kind of end on a high note, particularly for advertising. I want to have something that's like, I'm hooked. What do I do? How do I buy it? Where do I get the ticket? You know, whatever that is. But knowing that and being able to execute that um, is an interesting, difficult question because you as a creator are connected to this. So again, give you one more concrete example. Uh, every year I do a, a eight hour leadership course for police leaders in the US. Um, just because the police need lots of help and it, they're, they're interesting and weird to talk to. And so at the end of that, we measure their terrible, terrible uh, recruiting videos to join their police department, which are all awful. And, you know, no one's going into policing now. And so I did that this last week and I have, you know, 30 cops in there. These, these are, you know, chiefs and assistant chiefs and whatever lieutenants. So, you know, they're all there, senior people. And we had one from a, a uh, I'll suppress the name of the, of the department just in case. So anyway, it was okay. It was fine. It wasn't bad. And we're, we're measuring immersion live uh, among these cops. And there was a woman there who's a chief from this department. And they, I said, you know, tell me which videos. Do you guys tell me which departments you want to test? So it's her department. It was her officers. She knew this, you know, the city and all that. And so she was a super responder, even though the ad itself was not that good. So that's also interesting to know, right? She was, it was relevant to her. So from a brain perspective, when it's relevant to me, I put a lot more processing power into that because it's meaningful. So this also tells us about targeting, right? So out of this realm, you can show me, my kids are uh, young adults. You can show me a little commercial for, I don't know, Huggies diapers, cute babies with big eyes, and I'll be amused for 30 seconds. And then my brain will just flush it away because it's not relevant to me. But if I have infants at home and Huggies are 20% off, hey, that's super relevant. I am in, right? So. It's a whole, right, it's a whole different ball game. So I think the philosophical dilemma that we resolve or philosophy of science dilemma is if I, the creator, love this little baby that I've made, this commercial, this movie, this recruiting video, why don't other people love it? So in, in the song streaming world, the data are that 90% of streamed music has 10 listens or less. Wow. So that's the band and their moms, right? So 
And yet these people put so much energy into creating new music and it's so wonderful and they're great, but they're assuming if they love it, other people will love it too. But that's not always the case. So I, I have read that by measuring immersion, you can predict, is it with 97% accuracy, whether a song is going to be a hit or not? Yeah, three months in advance, immersion and applying machine learning uh, to these data. So they're very high frequency data. So the brain's nonlinear, so machine learning really picks it up. So that's pretty amazing. So I'm going to suppress the one bad word, but one of our early subscribers, a platform called Immersion, they give a shh measure, right? Like you're, again, your brain is lazy. So you, if you give a crap about this thing, your brain's turned on. And what's interesting is that's true across, across genres, which really surprised us. So I'm old enough that I'm not a hip hop guy. I just not my genre, more of a classic rock guy. But, you know, even across genres, we find that when people said, oh, my favorite style of music is blah, they hear a new, say, classic rock, they hear a new hip hop song. If it is immersive for them, it's immersive. Again, because these signals are coming way from the old areas of the brain. So even if it's not as relevant, it's still valuable to them. So what's happening just from a brain perspective, from a kind of a chemical perspective, I'm listening to a song, you're measuring me. And what I find amazing about this is that you can measure via my smartwatch. Um, and you can also measure via fingerprints. Is that? Yeah. That right? exactly. yeah. yeah. So yeah, you can right. measure my state of immersion very, very easily. I'm listening to a song that I love. I don't know that I'm going to love it, but I'm listening to it and I have fallen in love with this song. It's put me into a complete state of immersion. What, what is going on in that moment from a brain chemical level? So I'm, I'm going to back up in two parts just to fix the premise of that question on teeny bit. So easily we can measure it now, but 20 years of hard slogging science in there. So yeah, now it's easy, but it was really hard for a long time. Um, yeah. And, and then you said, and then it puts me in a state, but you don't always know. So when we ask people for new music, do you like this? Do you want to listen to it again? Would you share it? That has zero predictive ability to identify what songs will be hits three months in the future. So we don't really know because we're filtering that, filtering that through our conscious awareness. We want to be nice. Should I say mean things or, you know, whatever that is. Um, and so, yeah, so that kind of data is not always really open to us consciously. So we have technology to pull that out of our brains. Um, so it seems to be that this is for music, something that is, uh, similar, but a little bit different. So it seems in the music world, what people mostly um, are immersed in is music that seems somehow a little familiar. The tune is familiar, the voice is familiar, whatever that is, the words are familiar, but there's some little twist to it. So the brain kind of loves a new, new thing. So that has these two core components. One is I'm attentive. That's associated with the brain's binding of dopamine to the prefrontal cortex. And the second is it generates emotional response in me. I call that emotional resonance. It resonates with me. And that's associated with, with oxytocin. So dopamine and oxytocin have this weird kind of dance they do that seem to capture again, that value that I'm getting from this emotionally. And it's, it's a very weird dance because it's sort of like pushing on the brake and the, and the gas pedal on the car at the same time, actually back and forth really fast. And that back and forth is why it's metabolically costly. Um, so yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't have, um, a great example or a great uh, rationale other than we just looked at, you know, a couple hundred and a half different signals in the brain, come started combining them, and then finally kind of created this measure called immersion just through, you know, dental hard work and lots of experiments and, you know, step by step by step. So whatever it is, it seems to predict what you'll remember two weeks after a training, 
you know, which commercials are going to move sales and uh, which songs are going to be hits. Mm. And when I was reading about, when I was reading about immersion and, and kind of immersing myself back in, in that world, I was, one of the things that came up for me was whether there's a correlation there between the state of immersion and also this kind of state of wonder or, 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 you know, when you drop almost like when you're, I know you've done a lot of measurement when people watch charitable videos, videos that are there to try and get us the whole idea is we watch it and then we want to donate at the end. And there's these moments, right? Where you're thinking about your world, you're thinking about a conversation you had earlier, you're, you're half in this video and something happens in that video where you drop, like you drop into the story, you drop into the experience that they're trying to convey. Is that, as a, as a sensation, is that kind of how emotion, immersion feels? How do we know when we've become immersed in something? I love this question so much. So it, it's a very profound question, Julie. Um, the first is sometimes we do know that. Sometimes we have this, ah, oh, I've got to do something. But because this is sort of a, a, on a continuum, we only really know that at the extremes. It's like, um, you know, being uh, frustrated or something. I'd be a little frustrated because the clerk at the store wasn't as helpful. But, you know, how do I rate that? Compare, I mean, how frustrated I But if it's really extreme, Okay, I know that for sure, right? So we do know sometimes, but it's how do I get those little subtle gradations? That's where the technology comes in. Second is I, I'm very interested in in these awe-inspiring, profound experiences. Awe-inspiring, sorry. And so we have tried to induce awe in my lab in many, many different ways. So it turns out you can put a like a isolation helmet on someone, and people start hallucinating pretty quickly. Actually, if you don't have any feedback, sound, or vision, but it's not an awe experience. We had people watch sunrises. We um, had got a recording of James Earl Jones reading Psalm 23. Doesn't work consistently. Some people get a response and some are like, why is, why is Darth Vader reading some Bible verse? And so we just tried over and over and over. We talked to professional magicians, uh, including David Copperfield, and uh, who was interested in doing this. And, you know, his you know, theater is that wouldn't let us do it. So anyway, long, long kind of story to kind of produce that awe experience. But I think besides that, I'm super frustrated or I hate something and I'm profoundly moved by something in between is where most of us live, where most of our experiences are. And that's where it's hard to consciously quantify that without, you know, some, some piece of technology. I think that the, the subtext of your question is, why don't we have more of these? Because they are very valuable to us in terms of building emotional fitness. If I can have this profound experience, it can be changing. And it often happens when we don't expect it, like in traveling or hiking up a mountain at sunrise where maybe we expect that, but you know, where we are kind of open to something, we're here, we're present and we're not being distracted. And then something just amazing happens. Mm. And I think one of the things that I've been trying to focus on more over the past few months and i've had this conversation in a variety of different ways with a variety of different people is creating more moments of wonder and the irony about trying to create more moments of wonder is that you realize that the moments of wonder are there you just need to stop and pay attention you don't actually need to create them so i was having this conversation with um a friend of mine and she said that's a big focus for her creating more moments of wonder and i was just walking up the street to go and collect my kids and I was doing the, the thousand things in my head, you know, 
thousand things in my head. I've got my phone in my hand. I'm thinking about who I need to text back, what's going on, where I have to travel the next day. And her voice came in my head and I thought, okay, stop. A moment of wonder. And I stopped and I literally turned around and there was this incredible sunset just behind me. And the clouds were pink and purple. And and I'm not saying it was a transcendent experience, but what I'm saying is that the, the, the the discipline of trying to collect moments of wonder in your day rather than trying to create moments of wonder in your day has been a, a massive flip for me when we talk about awe and wonder and stopping and filling. I don't know if it's the immersive cup, but feeling like you inhabit your life, like you are immersed in this world, in the in your relationships. And a sense of gratitude, like how lucky am I as a human on this planet to see this beautiful sunset or to have this amazing experience. The good news, Julie, is that in this lazy, lazy brain we have, once you train yourself to be open to those moments of wonder, you'll find more of them, right? You're, you're training yourself. And that's why I think these powerful immersive experiences, which again are generally social and or emotional or both, um, are so strongly associated with longevity. So people who live longer tend to be more open to experiences. They tend to be more connected to other individuals. They have that high emotional fitness. They have this sense of connection and support. So I happen to live in the only city in the United States, it's called a blue zone, where people regularly live past 100 uh, because it's a company town and the company is a hospital and the hospital is run by a, a religious community called Seventh-day Adventists which they're vegetarian, they don't drink, they don't smoke, and they exercise, and they're in generally caring professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, um, and you can't kill these people, they just won't die. So, um, but if you talk to them, they tend to be very grateful, they're embedded in, because they're in a sort of religious sect, sort of, they're, they're embedded in their community, they have very tight ties, um, they can't do all the things other people do because they're vegetarian and they have restrictions. By the way, they take their Sabbath, which is Saturday, very seriously, they go to church and then they just rest, rest, take a nap, hang out, have big meals with their friends. They really take that notion. So there is this uh, notion floating around California where I live to have uh, what's called an electronic Sabbath once a week. So pick a day, like a weekend, no electronics, no computer, no phone, um, and just be open to that sense of wonder. Like what is, think about these amazing, your children, think how amazing they are. You made these things and yet they're their own little creatures. And, you know, doing this all day, looking at your phone instead of Hank, which you don't do, but you know, we're, we're all tempted. It's so addictive. Oh, uh, there's, there's, I think we, I am mindful of it, but I'm, I am certainly not innocent of it. Um, and there's various stories you tell yourself and, and there's various reasons you give yourself and I have to catch myself over. It's embarrassing how many times I have to catch myself over and over again and choose different, choose something else. Um, so the sense of immersion, I mean, there's so many places we can take it and this is going to be a dance of a conversation. The, the sense of immersion. So we have a sense of immersion when we are experiencing a piece of content, like a video, a trailer, um, which can be measured. And again, I know not easy. And I know you have spent 20 years decoding building the tech. What I meant by easily just to <laughs> excuse myself was the, the fact that it can be done via a smartwatch or a fingerprint, as opposed to electrodes all over your, all over yeah, your body. Like the, the, the route to measurement is easy. The measurement itself I know is not. Um, 
so we've got that. So talk to me. So we've got content and now we're talking about kind of mental health, sense of wonder, the, the power of immersion when it comes to keeping us anchored in our emotional health and our connective health and our community health. Um, I know that the army approached you, which was really blew my mind when I read it. And I know it was a little while ago. What did they approach you about in terms of how do you, how to use this technology? Yeah, a lot of the early funding came from the Department of Defense and other agencies in the for broader funding on the war on terror, which sought to equip soldiers, particularly special forces soldiers, with a new superpower called persuasion. And so if they are going to talk to tribal elders in Afghanistan or create leaflets to uh, convince people to tell us where the bad guys are, how would you do that most effectively? And so they really funded a lot, my, my lab and many others, on kind of building the foundation for kind of neurologic persuasion. Um, and then once we started doing that, then you think, okay, well, this has lots of applications if we can get it out of the lab. And so um, at least the DOD did that. As far as I know, it's still being used to kind of version zero of this um, kind of a software platform uh, to train soldiers to be more persuasive. So again, for for listeners who maybe don't like that, the P word persuasion as social creatures, that's what we do all the time, right? You are trying to persuade your kids to do things, do their homework, have dinner. Um, we're constantly doing that. Maybe you prefer the word influence. I'm okay with either one of those words, but my view is we might as well be as good as possible at doing this, right? So um, if we're going to be persuaded all the time by ads, by um, movies, in fact, you know, we really want to have these powerful emotional experiences, right? I don't want to walk into a store and have a blah experience, which most of them are. I want to have like, hey, welcome. We got some great stuff. Thanks for coming in our store. Let me show you. Like someone who's like excited, they're turned on that I'm there. Like, okay, now that's a great experience. I love that, right? So um, a part of that's just having the training. So anyway, yeah, so that it really is kind of teaching them to use words rather than weapons to be more effective, but that's true for all of us. Mm. What did you what did you find in that in that particular study? Like what were some of the what were some of the, the points that we can use ourselves, take like outside of the battlefield, out of the, the battlefield of war and into the battlefield of of life, of convincing your team, convincing your children to put their socks on, convincing your partner to take a huge adventure. What were some of the, the high notes there? So the kind of key, and I may have written a book right there called Immersion with uh, a lot of those insights from 50,000 brain observations. One is that uh, sort of a five-step uh, process to persuasion. The first I call staging. Welcome people, make them relaxed. If you're stressed, if you're hungry, if you have to pee, whatever, you, you're burning bandwidth that doesn't allow me to interact with you. So, you know, Google does this famous three-minute eyes closed meditation before they start a meeting, just so put your phone away, right? It's just focus. So, okay. So saying the stage, the second, so it has an acronym CERTA, S-I-R-T-A. So S is for staging. I is for immersion. So again, immersion is metabolically costly. The most effective way to sustain immersion and influence action is through storytelling, full stop. So that is introducing characters, having those characters face a crisis. They have to resolve that crisis some way. When that story is uh, related to the problem that you're trying to convey by our products that solves this problem or to employees, hey, if we work on this in this way, we can do this. So we had an employee named Bob 20 years ago had the same problem you guys are facing now. Okay, so there's a kind of people like us sort of story. We all get that. So 
storytelling, but really authentic storytelling. Can the characters in that story, I'm just thinking this through from an application standpoint, can the characters in that story be us? So, you know, we are, we are about to engage in an epic adventure. We are the characters in the story. These are the struggles that are, that await us. These are the challenges that we're having. This is the vision that we are shooting towards. Sure. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. As long as it's got that narrative structure. So again, the brain wants to get back to baseline. So you've got to kind of amp up that, um, that emotion. You've got to actually make it tangible and real. I call it a human scale story. So it could be us. Yeah, definitely. Okay. SI, the R is for relevance. I talked about that already. It's got to be relevant to you. If it's not relevant to the people you're talking to, like, Hey, there was a bacteria on Mars. I don't care about bacteria on Mars. Um, T is for targeting. So we may have stories or convey information or create an experience that is just okay. But if we can find a subset of people that love it, the super fans, they can really leverage that into a very powerful story. So this is true like for corporate training, corporate training. We've all suffered through a lot of it, but if you can find that we find between 10 and 20% for most experiences, you have superstars, they'll keep talking about it. They are their leverage points. So they're going to tell everybody else. So if you can find them neurologically, give them a badge, ask me about cost accounting, whatever that is, electronic or real badge. I think how powerful that would be. And that person feels so good. Hey, you love this seminar on cost accounting. Cool. No one else did, but you know, Dr. Bob, he's the guy. And then the A is for action. So having that call for action, implicit or explicit, will be more effective if it occurs at an immersion peak. If I have this high emotional tension, I'm ready to go. So one thing that drives me crazy, Julie, is that, you know, in the US, the pinnacle of advertising is the Super Bowl. You know, all these commercials go on YouTube and they don't pay a $15 an hour intern on a great commercial sometimes to have the hot link on that ad. By now, you got me. I'm ready to go. I want to buy this. I'm going to buy these mints. I'm ready. Where's the, I now get a search around Amazon or Walmart. I, it's too much work. So if you have me captured, ask me to do something. And I think from a sales perspective or even a leadership perspective, we're sometimes shy to make the ask. So when you've got me captured, I'm ready to go. Ask me, I, I want to do this thing. You remind me, I think I've told this story in the podcast before I watched a, I watched a documentary and it was on, it was on whales, not whales, the country, whales, the species. And it was a particular subset of, of whales and it was just, it was beautifully shot. I don't know how much money it would have taken to create this documentary. It was about the fact that this particular species of whales were becoming extinct. And it was due to overfishing. It was due to um, trawler nets. And I sat down and I gave an hour. Now it's very unusual for me to sit there for an hour to this documentary. And I was completely entranced. I was completely immersed. And it got to the end and then I'm waiting and the credits just rolled. And I was frustrated. I was frustrated that the people that had made this beautiful documentary didn't give me any kind of way to take action here. I'm like, I'm here. You just took an hour of my time. You've just told me the story. You've, you've made me care. You have me. What you want me to, what do you want me to do now? You can't just leave me here. Here, I'll donate, like get me involved. I'm ready, just, right? Like don't make it too. And, and I think this is worth talking about as well. You know, the, the tension in the brain, there's a healthy bandwidth, right? There's, there's a tension in my brain now between how I feel and what I'm able to do. Allow me to resolve that tension by giving me a simple step, but don't make that step. Cause what they could have done is before they rolled the credits, they could have said, research this topic and find the right, you know, find three actions. 
So we need to make that first step simple. What have you learned about how complex that step is allowed to be before we start getting diminishing returns? Well, that's a deep question. I don't think I have a good answer for that. What we know is that immersion does dissipate in about 20 or 30 seconds, typically. So you've got a very short window when you've really captured me. Now, immersive experiences are saved because they're highly emotional, are saved in the brain in a way that is more easily recalled. So then if I say, knew you watched that whale show and I had say your email or something because of the login at Netflix, I'm making this up now, I could send you information. Hey, you watched the entire hour of the whale documentary. Here's some more information. Here's how you can get involved or uh, you know something like that. So I could do a follow-up. You gotta use the same font, the same words, right? Make it really easy. This is like the, uh, the, the great commercial you see on TV and you go in the store, the grocery store and you see the end cap. It's all going to fit, same font, same logo, because we're going to recall that. Oh, that was a wonderful commercial. I love the, I'm doing Huggies now. I love the Huggy baby commercial. And now I see the same little baby with the big eyes and the red background or whatever it is. Okay, I'm going to buy some Huggies. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, it. The other thing that when we do this in person is really being present. You touched on this a little bit, but I think we are so the ADD world now we're just one-on-one -on -one or, or one-to-few kind of conversations like with colleagues just to be fully present. So one thing I like to do is take my phone and say, hey, let's, let's all turn our phones off. I'm staging, right? So first of all, I've done two things. I, I, I've made you follow my direction, right? I called the meeting, so I'm kind of in charge. And now I said, hey, this is important enough. Let's all look at each other. Hey, how are you guys doing? You ready for this? We're, okay, this is, this is we're, gonna, we're gonna rock for the next 20 minutes. Being said that, so that, that present, so I call this listening with your eyes, right? I really want to focus on that individual and make sure, or those few individuals. It's hard in that in that one to many. You just said you came back from a talk, so when you have a, a big you know stage, you try to make some eye contact, but of course it's much harder. Um, but I think you know that also diminishes the impact you have. Now, some I'm sure I I know you well enough. 20 people came after your talk and go, oh my gosh, you blew my mind. And you know, how do I connect to you? And you know, you, you did blow some people's minds. But if I'm talking about a customer, these four employees I need to talk to about our pivot in our company, that's something that is so uh, intimate and important that if I can really tell this and convey it in an authentic way, and it's really caring. I think, you know, the, none of this is brainwashing. There's no brainwashing. <laughs> you know, there there's really saying, look, we want to get really better at this. I'm, I need your help. That's asking for help is also a very important thing, right? And I think that you're right there, that that the way we feel about the word persuasion, you know, oh, I'm being manipulated. Oh, I'm being, and actually, you know, what you're doing, what we're talking about here is dealing with the human being before you deal with the situation. What you're talking about is being present to and embracing the human being, creating space for the human being before we get into the what we're here to do. And unless you do that, the human being's still there. You know, you know, the human being's still struggling, the human being's still distracted with their phone, the human being's still, you know, replaying a bad conversation they had five minutes ago. You know, you can acknowledge it. And so when we talk about staging here, what I feel like you're talking about is holding space, to use kind of my language on it. I am creating and holding space for this conversation. And I'm doing it respectfully and with presence and that is staging that is creating a space to enable and it's such a powerful effect when you do it well 
because it's so rare, right? I'm going to give you all of my attention, right? We have this phrase in English, paying attention. It, it is a metabolic cost. So if I'm going to pay attention, if I need you to pay attention to me, this is powerful, right? So, and it, it, I think all this works, you can practice on your children, right? So really getting that child just to look at you and you to look at them. And sometimes that involves touch, um, right? So um, in the militaries, and I've done a lot of work with them, um, they train uh, soldiers, at least in the US, they train soldiers. If this is important, you're going to break the space barrier. So instead of talking from here, I'm going to be here and I'm going to touch you. Julie, this is important. Okay, we got to do this thing, right? This is, I'm kind of conveying important information. Now that's a little aggressive if you're talking about your employees or customer, but physically present, you might want to invade the space barrier a little bit, right? So that your brain goes, oh, oh holy crap, something's happening here, right? So again, you've got to modulate to the environment you're in. Let's not be freaking people. No, but we, we call that anchoring. And as a parent, we do it all the time. You know, if you want someone, if you want your child to remember something, you will just, and again, you need, it's appropriate, it's relationship appropriate, it's time appropriate. Um, it has all the appropriateness and respect that it needs to have, but you might touch them on the shoulder and say, hey, honey, this is really, I need you, I need you here right now. Like, this is really important. And to anchor something with somebody and touch is a really powerful way of anchoring something. And equally, you know, I have been taught sure in the past. I'm at 95. Look at that smile. That means relative to my baseline, I'm getting a huge amount of value from this conversation, Julie. <laughs> For those of you who can't see right now, Paul is holding up his mobile phone with a 98% immersion. Yeah, it just now you get down because it's going back to baseline. And my psychological safety, I'm in summer. I'm totally relaxed talking to you. This is an amazing conversation, Julie. Thank you so much. Like I feel like we share a brain sometimes. Another thing that I, ha I have been taught um, in some of the work that I have done around creating spaces, because as, as an educator, as a speaker, as a leader, you know, a big part of what we do is we create space. We create and we hold space. Um, it's probably the most important thing that we do. Um, and so that anchoring thing to not, and this goes against instinct. If somebody is upset or in a negative emotion or angry or frustrated to not touch, and that went against my instincts. You know, if someone's like that, hug them. Like just, just hug them. Um, but to not anchor somebody in that, to give them space to feel it. Because what you do is when you jump on them, you are telling them, I am so uncomfortable with, with how you are right now that I just need to smother it and make it go away. And all you do is you anchor them there. You freeze them there. You, you tell them basically, I'm really uncomfortable with where you are now. Stop. And so to give somebody space when they are in that high intensity mode, be it upset, be it angry, um, let them feel it, let it move through, give them the psychological space and safety to do so. Don't anchor them in it. And that's, again, touch is such a powerful anchoring tool. And so it has the flip side. If you want something, if you want to convey something important, or if you want to hold somebody in a moment that's really beautiful, anchoring by a touch is very powerful but the, it has the opposite effect if you want to free somebody in a moment that they're struggling with and that they need to move through rather than stay in. Now, I will leave you with the science of that. That's something that I have been taught and I only remember it because it, it, I found it so counterintuitive for me, but I've also found it to be very powerful as a leader and a parent. I think it's really powerful that you're right. Once you have those additional sense feedback, then uh, it's like the, uh, you know, 
I know some terrible bad smell that you smelled when you were three years old and you smelled again. Now you're like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever because it, 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 it sticks in your brain so effectively. So I think really profound, Julie, man, that's, that's one of the most important things I think I've ever heard in the last couple of years. I mean, that's really important. I tend to be, you know, I want to comfort people, uh, but you're right. What recognize that they're struggling and let them struggle and, and recognize the struggle they're having as opposed to saying, okay, you have to stop this now. So I think that's great. And it's one of those beautiful intersections between your world and mind again, which is about creating, um, creating space, holding space, creating um, immersion, be it from the stage, be it as a leader, be it, be it as a parent. And one of the other things we talk about is breaking state. Again, I'm just thinking through this conversation, you know, if you're, if someone is in a state that they need to move through often, you know, if we break that state, they still need to process it at some point. They still need to move through it at some point. You're just delaying their ability to do that by, by touch, which again is a powerful way to break someone's state. Um, I want to go back a second to, so we've talked about this staging, we've gone deep into the staging. And a tool that I've seen work really well with that, by the way, is, and this isn't one of mine, this is one I've seen play out, is to start every meeting with what I want to say is. And it's just 60 seconds where you can say anything you like. What I want to say is. What I want to say is that my son is homesick right now and I'm a bit worried and I'm a little bit distracted. I just want to put that out there. So it's basically whatever you need to say to stay present, to be present, be here you know, you get 60 seconds or 30 seconds around the room, what I want to say is. So that's been a tool I've seen that's worked amazingly for what you're talking about there. So we've got that one. And then we've got the storytelling piece. And I've heard you say before that with storytelling, it's really important to open hot. Opening hot. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What does open hot mean? Right. So if we think from a brain perspective that I'm just trying to cruise most things are not worth spending a lot of energy to process. If I have a hot open, then I'm going to bounce your brain into this immersive state. So I've got to first capture your attention. That's the first thing that happens. And then I've got to get you to care emotionally. So, um, you know, it could be a, let's say a sales meeting. It could be as simple as we are down 25% this quarter. This is huge. We got to fix this problem. Okay. Oh, so it's almost like what you said and sort of, you know, what I need to share, like what I need to share is we're going to figure the hell out this problem because this can't last. Okay, cool. So that's a hot open. It's not a pleasant open. It could be a pleasant hot open. We doubled sales last quarter. You guys are huge. Okay, now we know. Now the the you know the 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 hard part of that's going to be and how do we keep it going? What did we do this last quarter that we can now replicate and extend for this quarter? And I know you worked terribly hard last quarter, and you're going to work harder this this quarter. Okay, yeah. But now I've got some juice behind it, right? So I've kind of opened hot. And then I could go back to a human scale story. So our sales leader, Bob, Bob, tell us what you did. You, you knocked the ball out of the park. Was it one sale? Was it a lots of small sales? Tell, get, share us what you did. So now I'm empowering other people to tell stories. And that's how we learn. Again, I may have a bunch of PowerPoint slides. I may have a bunch of data, but ultimately it's the story that's going to stick. And what I love that you just did there is again, flipped it back to characters which is Bob, you know, you are a character in this narrative. Like we have this amazing story of success to tell. You are one of the major characters in this narrative. Tell me your story. And so you're introducing it kind of the, the success formula rather than one stat at a time, you're introducing it one story, one character 
at a time and then he would jump in and go well these were our challenges and and this is what we did and this didn't work and then we did this so now you're introducing a whole bunch of different characters to the story which again makes it all the more immersive it is and, and also from a leader perspective or a influencer perspective i mean that in the leadership sense you, you want to throw people some softballs right easy to hit so if they don't work then always you know think think plan this out right think about okay if bob just goes well i don't know i made two extra phone calls i don't know something okay that's great well you know what sue was actually our number two person thanks bob extra phone calls that's a great idea now sue tell us what you did and what worked and what didn't work right so think about those backups so i'll give you just a quick anecdote on this um uh, the only psychologist to win a nobel prize danny kahneman uh, had a book come out uh, 10 years ago 12 years ago called thinking fast and slow sold tons of copies. I was interviewing Danny uh, on his book tour, live audience. I throw him one question, two questions. He literally just gave me two, two word answers. He's not, you can find this online somewhere. And so then I, I, in my, my sort of Hail Mary was said, Danny, I am really worried about your wife because she has to live with you and you're an expert on the mistakes people make in decisions. So I want to know when your wife makes one of those cognitive errors, do you correct her or not? Now he's laughing, the audience is laughing. Of course, it's a joke. And he said, hey, I've been married 30 years. I don't correct my wife. So now we've broken the ice. So think about that. Think about the, the difficulties that you might have. So I had prepared, like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if, if this just doesn't go well, and I knew, I knew him before, he's just kind of a flat guy. And so, you know, think about how to pull that story out of people. And the whole rest of the interview went great, by the way, because we got that loosened up, right? I think maybe he was, Early morning, he might have been tired or nervous or who knows. But what I love is there's power in that, right? In planning for planning for immersion. You know, there's a reason that I always have the same question at the beginning of the podcast, which is not an idea that I've been thinking about. So it's not me leading. It's not me putting words in anybody's mouth. It's not me directing anything. It's a what are you passionate about right now? What idea is lighting you up? And then that then gets allows the guests to drop into a space where they feel electrified and they feel energized and then it's a warm beginning to a conversation so you can plan for that plan for that in your meetings you can plan for that in your sales pitches you can plan for that you know in any area of life how are you going to get someone to drop into something that lights them up and then take that energy and convert it elsewhere talk to me about um focus on fun and not fear because that again really that really hit me because we live, and you know, I talk about this often on the podcast, we live in a world right now, unfortunately, where we are seeing this accumulation of a few different trends. We are seeing media revenue, newspaper, and TV revenue drop into the 90th percentile now, because the we used to have, they used to have a whole newspaper to advertise in, now they have a tiny screen. We used to have to pay for news, and now we don't. And so what that has created, is a world where the only tool that's available to catch our attention, it's not the only tool, but the only, the fastest tool is fear, drama, fear, and outrage. And so we live in this world of drama, fear, and outrage because it's the fastest tool to catch attention with in industries that are struggling to catch our attention. And so when you said lead with fun and not fear, I was like, yes, tell me why that works. Because if we can flip this story, that there is a way of being able to lead people towards something rather than, you know, getting them angry or outraged and to run away from something. That's incredible. So what have you learned about this shift here, leading with fun and not fear? Great question. Um, 
So fear is a very good short-term motivator, but a very poor long-term motivator. So we acclimate to fear quite quickly. I think in the online world, fear is the analog of clicks. I can click stuff and not really give a crap about it, right? But fun means I want to spend more time here. I want to, like your whale documentary, I want to spend more time in this experience. I'm going to give my time or my money or both to actually, you know, have this experience longer. Where the fear response is, it acclimates very quickly back down to baseline. So I think... Um, you know, we think attention is everything. Eyeballs are everything. It's not. My eyeballs are going all kinds of things. And I'm just hovering over that skip the ad kind of thing. But every once in a while, like on YouTube, you get an ad that goes, oh, yeah, well, this is this is interesting. This is meaningful. This well-targeted for me. This, you know, all those things where you go, oh, actually, I'm going to spend two minutes watching this interesting little video. They're trying to sell me something, but maybe it's something I need. So I think it's that um, getting people to care is important. And I can care if it's fearful. I, I will, you know, I'll avoid pain. I'm going to avoid all the bad things in life. Um, but again, that dissipates quite rapidly. Also, from a leadership perspective, right? So, it, um, you know, I, I don't think we're allowed to whip employees anymore. I think that's probably a true statement. Um, last I checked, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to check again. A lot of things changed, but <laughs> last I checked, I'm old enough that I've had the probably like you, Julie. I've had the yelling bosses that just scream at people. There's no place for that. Again, great short-term motivator, but man, what have I, I've had a couple of those. And all I do is look at my watch and go, man, when can I clock out? When can I get a different damn job? Like, I'm a grinder. You're a grinder. I will work my ass off. Don't yell at me because you're upset about something. Don't take it on me. Give me a plan. I, I'm, you, know, I, you know, I don't need your emotion thrown at me. Don't do that. But if you say, hey, this, this week's going to suck, but on Friday, we're going to get the best beer and the best pizza you've ever had in your life. And so we got to grind it out. We're going to do some 10, 12 hour days. It's not going to be fun, but let's do this thing, right? We're all in this together. And importantly, from a leadership perspective, man, get in there, roll up your sleeves. Like I always try to do the worst job first, whatever that worst job is, I'm in, let me do that. Right. If I'm not willing to do it, what I'm going to sit in my chair and point at other people like a, I don't know, some, uh, King the Versailles, you little peons do it for me. No, get in there. My favorite was, uh, you know, Jim Senegal started Costco, one of these big warehouse stores in the US. Maybe you have them in Australia. And so uh, Jim was a great guy, just retired recently, never took more than $100,000 in salary. No, he had shares and all that, number one. Number two, every day wore that short sleeve white shirt with a name tag that said Jim on it. He would spend time in the stores, stock room, talk to the customers. He knew his business inside and out and people loved him because he was out there on the front lines. And did he have intel on what was working and what was not? Oh yeah, not from a spreadsheet, he was in the stores. So I think my view is if you're a leader, you've got to be customer facing at least one day a month. You got to be out there. Talk to the employees, talk to the customers, you got to figure out ground up and that's storytelling, right? You can have a story. So now as a leader, when I come back to my say board meeting and we go, Hey, you know, we've got three stores, they're losing money. You know what? I've spent uh, a couple of days in those three stores in this last two weeks. Let me tell you what's happening in those stores. As opposed to here's the data sales have dropped 12% and whatever. It's a whole different ball game, right? I interviewed Ben Jones again recently. So Ben used to run a, a team in Google called Unskippable Labs, and their job is basically to crunch out the data from 5 billion hours of video that we watch every single day on YouTube and figure out what makes us press skip and what makes us watch an entire video. 
and we were and we were having this conversation about about story and i realized that i had watched an ad which i want to talk to you about length here lengths of attention span when it comes to immersion i realized i had watched an ad for eight minutes the other day and it was because it was a story it was they were selling a particular training course a particular online course and they were telling the story of somebody who had had success with this course and i sat there for eight minutes and watched the entirety of this of this ad and i think that a that speaks to the power of storytelling but also i think that calls into question a few assumptions that we have about attention spans now i'm you know the first to say you know human beings have less attention span than a goldfish now and and that's a very funny anecdote and i never know how on earth they quantify that with goldfish i just i don't know how that happens I don't know whose job it is to measure goldfish. But what I do know is I think that, that we're hitting this point now where we can actually split that assumption into two and go, yes, it is harder to get our attention than ever before. But if you can do it right, we will give you crazy amounts of our attention. We will binge watch ridiculous lengths of things if you can, you can get it right. Have you learned anything with the science and the data around length? like what, what an ideal length is when it comes to immersion. I'm assuming we can't stay immersed or maybe we can for hours. It's a great question. So I'm gonna, again, change the premise a little bit. It's easy to get your attention. It's hard to keep your attention. And once you pay attention, it's difficult to get me to actually care about what you're explaining to me, right? So this is an analog, analog is, um, I'll just suppress it. This is a friend of mine who randomly says things that have, I, people I don't know, it is like person I've known for a long time. And I, I kind of dread talking to her because I, I, it, just, it doesn't relate to me at all. And I just, she just, she's just a talker and very nice lady, older. And, uh, you know, I try to be kind, but it's nothing to do with me. And so, yeah, I'm just, my attention is wandering. So got my attention. Hey, Paul. And then, and then Bob, I don't know who Bob is. I always Bob. So, so what we find is you have this sort of 15 second window to, to capture attention. If you don't get it within 15 seconds, that hot open, and then you've got to build that emotional tension in there. It's got to have character. So human scale is the best way and have them have some kind of crisis, something going on that I care about. So as social creatures, we are fascinated by the other humans. This is where the storytelling comes in, right? Give me a reason to care about this. If it's more relevant to me, I'll care more. If it's more effectively targeted at me, I'll care more. If I'm a super fan already, um, I'll kick in. Um, so I think it's the developing that emotional connection. So the technical answer to your story is that if I look at sort of maximum immersion, I am absolutely overwhelmed. We have never seen that more than about 40 seconds. And there is a profile of people who are super immersive people. Um, by the way, they're very influenceable as well. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but basically it's just going to have sine wave. So I want to think about modulating this longer experience so that I have some peaks and valleys. So think of a of a novel or, or a two hour movie, right? I always have multiple storylines or even a 22 minute sitcom. I have multiple storylines because it's just exhausting to keep you at maximum immersion for too long. It's just, I'll just be sweating and gross. So I wanna have that little comic relief, have another story with less tension and build it up and then come back to story one with a less tension. So when I think about modulating this, but from a leadership and a sales perspective, when I have that call to action, when I need you to do something, I want to ramp up that emotional peak, right? So that means I could have a little trough, give you a break. Hey, no, it's week's going to be tough, blah, blah, blah. 
and we're gonna have this great pizza party. Now, this is what we gotta do. Number one, number two, number three. You guys with me? We gotta do this thing. Let me hear you. Yeah, okay. Right. So I've got to have that tension in the call to action, that kind of high emotion. So that I think I I danced around your question, Julie, rather than answering it, but it's gonna be a sine wave because the brain can't sustain it. But as long as you curate this, and this is where I think practice comes in. Besides measurement, you know, we can always measure, uh, but, you know, sort of practicing this other people and go, if it's important, um, I, I'm shocked. We, we did this study um, published a couple of years ago of CEO apologies, right? So there's some crisis, uh, including the BP oil spill and uh, one of the uh, train lines in England uh, just stopped running and all people were stranded. And so the CEOs get on, they don't seem to practice very well or whether practice poorly. And the guy from BP, the CEO, actually said, oh, I want to resolve this. This is ruining my life. What? 12 men just died. You killed millions of fish and birds. And, you know, so he, he was fired. I mean, you know, it's the lack of understanding. So I would say if this is important, try it out, right? If you're going to give a talk uh, at, at TED, if you're going to go on TV, you're, you're going to do it cold. I mean, if we're talking about our stuff, Julie, we can do that all day long, right? Easy, eight hours. But, you know, if, if it's a tight, it's got six minutes to get this thing across, write it down, practice it, try it in the mirror, get some feedback. I think we've got to rehearse all this so it's better. By the way, if, uh, one of my favorite books, The Experience Economy by Pine and Gilmore, says the same thing for anyone who's customer facing. Practice that. Why, why would you just wing it if you're a salesperson, if you're you know, customer facing on the phone, in person, online, work out a script, see how it works, try it out, try variations, see which one works better. One of the biggest things I find that people resist practicing, but probably where the largest amount of opportunity lives, is how you respond to the word no. Beautiful. Because often we, we spend so much time getting to an answer. We practice the getting to the answer. And then when the answer is no, we, <laughs> we either run really quickly, we shut down, um, we deflect. We, this fear we have of the word no and, and our reluctance to practice hearing it and where to go from there. I think that there's a huge amount of opportunity in that. There was a, a Microsoft research put out this paper six months ago saying that on average, on average for B2B sales, you have five no's before you get the first yes. Average, which means it could be 10 no's. I was going to say that sounds like a really good day to me in my, my experience of building companies. That sounds like an amazing day. If you've only got to live through eight no's before you get to a yes. I mean, five with, with each client. I mean, five. sorry. Right. So that means it create value for that person. I think of that a lot when I get no's. I'm a, I do a lot of customer facing stuff and I say, yeah, this is not a good solution for you. Awesome. Um, we'll keep you in the newsletter and then you, you may find other uses and happy to be of service to you. So. I always try to end a conversation with the word service. How can it be of service to people go, well, I'm not buying your stuff. That's all right. It's the world's small place, right? So, and you'd be surprised. I had a guy on LinkedIn I'd talked to in five years and goes, I was just thinking about you the other day. And I was thinking about this idea. Cool. Happy to reconnect. Mm, I love that. We, we have a program that we run called Impact 45 and the very final practice the very final kind of exercise as the program is what we call the go for no challenge, which is, all right, what are the 10 kind of approaches that you know you need to make and that you've been avoiding or, you know, what are, what are the 10 things that you want to go for? Write them down, 
and go for no. That doesn't mean you want no. That just means you are prepared to hear a no. You're prepared to hear a no and then how do you come back from that and walk away with a relationship that you didn't have before? It might be 10 no's, but it'd be 10 relationships. Like how do we remove our fear of the word no and practice for it and go for it, right? I know I've got to hear 10 no's before I get a yes. All right, let's go for those no's. Let's jump in. I'm going to walk away with 10 relationships. Let's bang them out, yeah. But yeah. also I love that so much. I, first of all, this program sounds great. Um, think about that with your spouse or your children, right? So be open to the no. I think if we're, we recognize everyone's as a sentient being and they have different desires and needs than we do, then we should accept the no as okay. You know, I think as my kids have gotten older, you know, say, hey, we should do this thing. Like, we don't really like doing that. I'm like, oh, well, that's all right. We don't, I, we just, no's fine. I want to empower the no because then we're moving you to what's more interesting for you. You know what I mean? So I think the same thing with customers and employees, by the way. I'm a big believer in employees saying no to stuff. I mean, unless it's just, you know, we're going to do this or we're going to go under. But I think you should be able to kind of choose your own career path, particularly knowledge workers, which to me is everybody. You are your own CEO. So you should be able to push back. And it feels very weird sometimes that people that I've hired, particularly younger people, and they're like, no, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, why not? Well, number one, it's stupid. Number two, I don't know how to, do, you know, I'm like, okay, well, it's just, how do we build a team so we can get this done? And and I love that young people just are not afraid to say no to me. And I'm yeah. like, you're awesome. Good. Okay. There's no problem. But you do have that moment, right? I mean, I do with my team. You have that moment where you're like, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's let's work with the no. And I actually, um, I was inspired by a conversation I had recently on the podcast um, with this incredible professor who was talking about the fact that we need to learn to to hear the word no. Every single influence piece of training you do is how to get to the word yes. And again, we spend no time at all trying to figure out and how we hear someone's no and how we can be prepared for and embrace somebody's no. And it got me, I wrote a newsletter about it afterwards, actually. It got me thinking about a friend of mine and we had a conversation a long time ago and she's somebody who is very good at no. She's just brilliant at it. You know, you'll say, do you want to do this? She'll be like, no, no, thanks. Or she'll say yes to something. And then three days before, she's always very respectful. Three days before she'll come back and she'll go, actually, that doesn't work for, doesn't work for me anymore to do that. How about we do this instead? And we had this big conversation about it. And I was talking to another friend about her and he said, he said, you know what I love? Her name's Shamala. You know what I love about Sham? He's like, I trust her nose, which means that I can a hundred percent trust her yeses. She, how profound is that? Like how many people do you want in your life where you trust their yes? Cause when they are a yes, they are a yes, whole heart. And don't you want to be that person? where someone trusts your yes. And in doing that, they have to be able to trust your no's. So I'm, I, I love that so much. And I try to live my life in the no space. And that was influenced by my late colleague, now Peter Drucker. And Drucker wrote, I think in the 1960s, that every individual and every organization should annually have a do not do list. So take the bottom third, write down the stuff you're doing, take the bottom third, throw it out, and maybe the bottom half. So I think, you know, for my friends, for people around me, when I'm in, they know I'm in for sure, but I'm going to say no to a lot of things. I'm not going to say no to relationships in general. I LinkedIn people, you know, I, I'll, I'll connect to you. I can, you know, I can spend 
two minutes and give you some advice on LinkedIn or whatever, or do a short Zoom. Um, but I'm going to say no to a lot of things that uh, dissipate my energy. Because I have so little energy, Julia, you can tell. I'm just, I'm barely hanging on at this I point. I always think of you as, as, a, <laughs> as a highly exhausted human being. Yeah, I have too much energy. But I think saying no, when my kids are born, I stop watching sports. I stop listening to new music. I know it is a shock to many, many people. But I said, I got enough music in my head. I'll just do the music that I remember. And why do I care about sports when I can actually play sports with my kids, right? Or I need to cut things out. So I'm really, I'm, I try to be really good at saying no to lots of things and then saying yes to the stuff that's most valuable, either to me or the people I care about or that help somebody. What's better than, you know, helping someone who really needs it. So I have friends like you who say, we call you up because if we want an idea critiqued. We want an honest feedback. We know you'll give it to us. But I think that's the most caring thing. Why would I lie? Oh, a brilliant. Start that business. Yeah, it's, we're selling, you know, bingle bangles are wonderful. You should do that. No, that sounds like I had a friend who was had a midlife crisis, sort of. And he's an academic who's going to run for Congress from the U.S. He talked to 20 friends. I was the only one who said no. I said, hey, you have the best selling. I won't tell the field because you probably could find him. But you have the best selling textbook in this field. You make a million dollars a year from this book. You say something wrong with an open mic. Your publisher will pull you out of that cash cow that you've created. Why would you ever run for Congress? And he ended up running twice, not getting elected. And it, I think he got it out of his system. But I think that's the most caring thing. Let's think about, think about him. I don't care about for me. You want to do this. Let's think about the cost and benefits. And everyone else like, oh, that'd be so awesome. Cool. You should do it. I'm like, Poof. a lot of risk. But that there. again goes back to having people be able to trust you. No, like I don't feel to not feel obligated. I don't feel obligated to agree. I don't feel oblig. I'm not driven by obligation. I'm driven by, and this is, sounds really cheesy, so replace this word with whatever word works, but love. I love you enough to say no. I love you enough to disagree. I love you enough to set a boundary here and, and hold it because what I'm doing when I do that is holding our relationship as higher than this exact situation. Yeah, then I not that I want to be uncomfortable here, but I'd rather be uncomfortable now and be honest. I call it the same thing. It's because I love it. By the way, I was writing that down and I wrote, I think it's brilliant, Julie. I wrote trust your no with a K-N-O-W. Also trust your no. And surround yourself with people whose nose you also trust. Both with a K and with an N. Start with a K right. and with an N. I'm gonna play with that. Yeah. Um I just want to finish by going back to where we we kind of accidentally started, which was, you know, this use use of immersion when it comes to our mental and our and our emotional health, both for ourselves and the people around us, our teams, the people in our families. I know that you you have said to me both in email and and in person that this is an area you want to dedicate the next ten years of your life to, which is taking everything you have learned about immersion and applying it so that we can live longer, happier, healthier, more thriving lives. Talk to me about what that vision looks like to you. If you take where we are now and where you believe that we can be, if we can, if we had the tools, if we had the right tools, what would it, what does the vision look like? It's a scary vision from a business perspective because we're launching our first consumer-facing app called Tuesday, July 1st, a couple of days from now. A couple of days from now. We're still working on it, uh, which 
I believe will be free. It will empower individuals to see their own emotional connection to others and to experiences, to give them goals, to build up that emotional fitness, allow them to parse their days, weeks, months into finding out where, what their best times are and what are their worst times. They, they have the power now to have this insight to manage their own social emotional states that we really were just kind of winging it before, again, because these signals are hidden from our conscious awareness. And then bring that to businesses. Um, in fact, we have a lot of things going on in, in Australia. I won't spill the beans because there'll be some announcements soon. Um, because of the requirement to create emotionally healthy workplaces, which Australia has been leading on and is moving into the US and, and Europe as well. Um, so I think once we take that seriously, and Julie, last time we talked about you know running out of humans, right? We're, we're just not seeing any babies being born in most areas of the world now. So we have to really take care of these humans from a work perspective, but also just a you know, ethical perspective. So having those tools and then giving businesses the tools to ensure they're creating emotional fitness, they're allowing people to um, be alerted to access wellness resources, and then training ourselves as, I, as we started out by saying, hey, I'm, I'm coming out of work emotionally whole, physically whole. And when I come home, I'm a better parent, I'm a better spouse, I'm a better citizen and having that entire thing wrapped around. There's no work-life balance. There's work-life integration for everybody. And so let's integrate also emotional fitness into that. So having the tools, having the data, sharing the data and giving people alerts. And this is what we've been able to do in the last year. Um, I guess it's been a year about since we've spoken, but giving people their own personal alerts to utilize uh, wellness and resiliency resources before they have a crisis. Um, that's going to save healthcare expenses, but also save a lot of suffering and get a lot of people to manage their own emotional fitness. And is that what you held up before? I know that anyone's listening audio, but again, you held up your iPhone. I'm just going to try and describe it. You held up your phone. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see it. Um, and it was your, um, it was a mark out of 10 for your immersion. And you also had summer, like what was the, what was the season? Yeah, so the background uh, is our physiologic, psychological safety. So we have sort of two dimensions, right? The humans can give us joy, give us pleasure, can, can, you know, engage us emotionally, or they can drive us insane. And so psychological safety is the physiologic measure of the friction you're getting from being around people. And so the background is summer, fall, or winter. So am I totally relaxed, kind of a little bit stressed, or quite stressed? And so those two data streams... Um, you can just see, you know, again, hour by hour, second by second, and to have goals for that, I think it changes the whole discussion. But I have, we certainly know about chronic stress, but honestly, maybe 5% of the population has a chronic stress issue. What we're missing is fully thriving, as you said earlier, Julie, really being fully engaged in life. And for that, I actually need moderate levels of stress, right? Like I have a little stress now, I'm talking to you, I'm excited, I'm burning energy, or think of the gym. You go to the gym, physiologically, you are stressed, but you're doing that to build up your cardiovascular fitness. So we still also need these immersive experiences that are moderately stressful, that are metabolically costly, that stretch us, that open us up emotionally, that improves our work life, our home life, gives us a sense of, of growth and emotional uh, kind of fitness around what we're doing. And I can, I can imagine, you know, if you, if you're, looking at this data all day and you're like, okay, today's a rough day and there's going to be rough days, right? There was this meeting, this meeting, this meeting, I've been in winter and, and all day. How do I want to go home? You know, I want to go home in summer. I want to go home with warmth to share, with sunlight to share. So I'm going to go for a walk. 
before I go home. I'm going to change my state. Like the data empowers somebody to say, all right, this is the state. It was appropriate that I was in this state for a little while because there's, there's healthy tension. Okay, now I'm going to change my state and I'm going to share that state when I go home with the people that I love. Or I've got to go into a, a meeting about innovation and creative ideas. Well, according to the data here, I'm not in the right state to be able to do that right now. So what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to, go, I'm going to quickly go to the gym for 30 minutes beforehand or I'm going to sit and listen to some music. I'm going to change my state. And, and I think that that as an adult, as a grown-up, as a leader, as a parent, is one of the most important tools that we can bring to our lives and to our relationships, the ability to be able to um, clearly understand our state and reset our state at any given time. And so what you're doing is giving people the data to be able to do that, which is huge. Amen. I love it. And that state is contagious, right? I come in stressed. I can, even if I'm trying to be effective, you're going to absorb all that stress, whether you know it or not. But if I come in relaxed, focused, as you said, uh, creating that space for something amazing to happen. That's what we're really missing is those amazing experiences. So we, we get them on vacation. We get them, you know, randomly here and there. Uh, but give me more of them, right? That's what I want. How would you see, I mean, I know you've got kids. How would you see their world looking, you know, with access to this kind of data? How would you see their world five years from now? Uh, you know, I'm very torn on that question. I would love your view as well as a, as a, as a parent and a, as an intellectual. Um, you know, we have resolved almost all the major things that killed us 100 years ago, right? We're, we're still battling cancer and heart disease, but that's lifestyle and because people are living for so long. What's, what we haven't made any progress on, in fact, we're going backwards, is mental health. So mental health disorders are exploding and... Um, you know, I have family members that suffer from it. It is a real epidemic. I don't know why, but I think one uh, way to combat this is to have insight into your own emotional state and also to be, we have alerts in our app to tell you to get help. I can't force you to do that. So for example, we have a company that um, has a health app for first responders, firemen, policemen. And what they find is that if the app tells you, here's a menu of things you can do, everything from suicide prevention hotline to call a therapist to watch this video to use a VR meditation app. If the technology tells you, hey, we're, you know, you opted in to get your brain measured, you have so much more compliance to that than just, hey, if you feel bad, call somebody. Well, what again, what does feel bad mean? I feel bad all the time and I feel great all the time. I don't even know. I have no idea anymore. So I think, you know, by having those tools, I think we can create a safer environment where people, as you said, can live longer, happier and healthier. And without those insights, I don't know how to combat, you know, all the mental health disorders other than just, you know, putting SSRIs in the water supply and that doesn't work either. So um, I, I'm worried. I'm really worried about, you know, the future uh, for my kids and your kids. Um, so we've got to get ahead of this thing. It's too late. Both my children, when they went to college, had in their freshman year, first year, had uh, people in the dorms uh, who committed suicide. That's an absolute tragedy. But if we can get ahead of this with data, if we can at least for some people prompt them to get help or for people, for, for minors to alert parents or family members if they opt in to share their data or clinicians, this person really needs help. And the problem with depression is you don't want to get help. You want to sit in your bed and not do anything. And it's awful. 
Um, but if a device will prompt you or a device will alert someone to check on you before you have a crisis, at least we can stop that crazy upward trend in mental health disorders. And part of that, I, I know, more diagnosis. There's more openness to being diagnosed. I understand all that. But um, I still think even if you take that out, the rate of increase in these disorders is, is just uh, horrendous. So um, let's create a, a happier, safer place. And also maybe stop killing each other at such a high rate in countries and neighborhoods that we know about. Life's short. Let's try to enjoy it. I think also, you know, there's there's the data side of it. So there's the, the conclusiveness of the of the um, diagnosis, which takes data. But probably the biggest piece for me is the self-awareness part. And as, you know, grown-ups in Western society, we have access to tools. We have access to courses. We have access to personal help. We have access to counsellors. Very thin bands of people have access to that. It takes money. It takes attention it takes time it takes access it takes knowledge to know that it's there to find the right ones and i think that what the data that you are creating what it does is it democratizes this incredible journey of self-awareness whereas you know this is what it looks like when i am here this is what it feels like these are what my triggers are ah i'm learning this triggers me and when that happens i do this and when I get in these situations, the best way to defrag out of that for me and not just tumble into the next is to do this. And that journey, that journey of self-awareness as a human being is for me, the journey to mental health. It is the journey to emotional health. It's managing yourself as a whole ecosystem, understanding yourself, being able to reset yourself, micro resets, and then know when a big reset, you know, I'm not great. I haven't been great for a few days. A big reset is needed here. You know, that self-awareness, I think, is the most powerful part of the data because so few people have access to that at the moment. Yeah, I totally agree. And if it's free and you can use it, why not? You know? Yeah. So download Tuesday. This episode will come out in probably a couple of months, so it'll be well and truly ready. Um, download Tuesday. Paul, thank you so much again. Julie, what an honor to spend time with you. I really feel it's a privilege. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.